This is The Guardian. I'm Laura Murphy-Oates, and this is The Full Story. For 30 years, a company called Eupla, formerly known as the Aboriginal Community Benefits Fund, sold low-value funeral insurance in Aboriginal communities. Earlier this year, the company collapsed, leaving thousands of mostly low-income people without the means to pay for their funerals, and in some cases, out of pocket by more than $15,000. People haven't been told the truth about these policies. I've got elders that have been in these funeral funds for years, and they've planned to give the money to their families so that they can survive. Now, these elders will go to their grave not knowing how hard it would be for these families. The Australian corporate regulator is suing this company for misleading conduct and has opened a separate investigation into its collapse. But this comes after decades of warnings about Eupla from Aboriginal organisations, consumer groups and the Banking Royal Commission. So why was this company able to operate in this way for so long? And now it's collapsed. Can anyone who paid into this fund get their money back? Today, the funeral fund accused of targeting vulnerable Aboriginal communities. It's Thursday, the 16th of June. Ben, have you ever reported on a story like this before? No, this is very very strange and distressing sequence of events. Ben Butler is Guardian Australia's senior business reporter. How would you describe this story? It's about what happens when no one in power cares about things that have been going on for decades until they become completely untenable. It boggles the mind, really. I mean, Choice have said, the consumer group said, it's one of the worst financial scandals they've ever seen. Lorena Allen is Guardian Australia's Indigenous Affairs Editor. So, Lorena, to understand this story, I'm wondering if you can tell me a bit about the people who bought this funeral insurance and what their experience was like. So, one of the people I spoke with was Carly Saylor. My name's Carly Saylor. I was um, born a Smith, um, my mob from central Queensland. Who's a Barada Gabalbara woman living in far north Queensland now just after her father-in-law died in 2000, someone came and knocked on the door. I don't know how, but within probably two months of my husband's father passing away and being buried, um, we had a fellow come to our door. And he had all that the marketing stuff that was red, black and yellow. And, yep. And that yep. was called Aboriginal Community Benefits Fund. Yes, yeah. You know, we thought they were... Uh, at the corporation. The person at the door was selling funeral insurance and because the marketing materials used the colours of the Aboriginal flag, the red, black and yellow, and because of the name, Carly thought this was an ATSI, an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander corporation. And this person told her that if she paid a certain amount every fortnight or every month, when her time comes, her funeral and her burial costs would be taken care of. Now, Carly and her husband have eight children between them, a blended family, and 29 grandchildren. And Carly is a really thoughtful, careful person, and she wanted to take care of their own funerals so that cost wouldn't be left to their children and grandchildren. We just thought, you know, 
this sounds really good. You know, we thought we'd taken that burden off our family. So Carly and her husband signed up and they've been paying into the ACBF, or UPLA as it's called now, ever since. I'm aware of people who have been contributing a lot longer than that and, you know, like paying for their full families. So, you know, you'll have a father who's working, paying for himself, his wife and, you know, four or five children. Lorena, why do you need insurance to cover the cost of funerals? How much do they actually cost? Well, funerals are really expensive. I mean, the the funeral industry itself estimates that it's between seven and a half and ten thousand dollars to to have a funeral. Um, so, in Aboriginal communities, there are massive cultural concerns around when somebody passes. You have to give them a proper send off. It's a very very important thing. But also, a lot of our communities don't have that kind of money on hand for when someone passes away. I see families just here where I live struggle. Uh, you know, really struggle to get money together to bury their family members. And just the heartache, you know, the strain on the families. They're going through sorry business. They shouldn't have to worry about that. Mm. And also the frequency of funerals and sorry business in Aboriginal communities might surprise the rest of the population, right? There's a lot of chronic health conditions and other factors behind that. But I'm wondering what do people do when they just can't afford a funeral? There, there are paupers' funerals that you can have, but they're very, very basic. Paupers' funerals, state-assisted funerals, you can't have a church service. It's got to be graveside. And for a lot of our old people who've been on the missions and everything, yeah, that that's huge for them. And for a person who's a loved grandparent, an elder in a community who's given their life to their community, to have a pauper's funeral, it's very undignified and, and, you know, our elders deserve their dignity to be preserved, especially after they pass. How much would people pay for this insurance on average? The premiums would go up after a certain period, but people might start out paying, you know, $8 a fortnight, then it went up to 10 then it went up to $14 a fortnight. Um, in the case of uh, one man in South Australia, Aaron Wilson, he was paying $14 a fortnight out of his Centrelink payments um, for this funeral fund. Mm. And the important thing to note, Laura, is that people made these payments above and beyond all others. Like they made a special effort to scrimp and save Mm. so that they could meet these payments every fortnight. They went without other things so they could pay into this fund. We'd heard rumours about ACDF's Yupla funeral fund for several years, but nothing was ever put in paper to us. Mm. And it was just sort of off, you know, the Murray grapevine that we were hearing things. In March this year, Carly Saylor said she was still paying into the fund when she found out that the whole company had collapsed. We received an email from Yupla stating um, that they'd gone into liquidation and um, that that was it more or less, you know. Um, so we started trying to contact Yupla because we didn't know any better what was going on. We've just been left in the dark. What did that mean for Carly? Well, what it means for Carly and thousands of other Aboriginal people is that they've lost the funeral cover that they paid for. She may well lose all of the money she's paid in in premiums, over 20 years' worth. So um, 
I did a quick calculation the other day between my husband and myself. We're losing up to 16500 Oh, my God. Carly said when she asked the liquidators whether they would get anything back, she was told no. He was very, you know, he was really transparent that um, we would probably lose our money. And she's not alone. More than 13,000 Aboriginal policyholders and their families will most likely be left with nothing. This has been going on for years. They hadn't been regulated by government. They made fool out of government at, you know, the ATSI community's expense. So, Ben, Lorena has just been stepping through how Eupla attracted customers and what customers' expectations were. I'm wondering if you can talk me through the business side of things, including how this business was run and what led to its collapse, starting with, you know, the very start, how it actually got off the ground. So, Eupla was founded in 1992 by a man named Ron Pattenden. He's originally from the UK lived in Australia at the time, is now a resident of New Zealand. For most of its life was known as the Aboriginal Community Benefit Fund and it grew to become quite large. At its peak, it's had about 25,000 clients, almost all of them Indigenous. Mm. So at the point of its collapse in March, it had about 13,000 customers left on the books and they had contributed around $40 million dollars at that point. Mm. You know, so right from very, very early days, from sort of 1993, the authorities worried about the operation of ACBF, as it was then known. Mm. The New South Wales Office of Fair Trading launched action against it, you know, within a year of it being set up. And um, over the sort of decades that followed, both it and the Australian Securities and Investments Commission had various sort of goes at it over some of its business practices. Just broadly, what are some of the big issues with the way that this company was run? The thing that got into trouble with regulators the most, uh, particularly with ASIC, was its the way it sold its products, mm. which was by going door to door in Indigenous communities and knocking on doors and signing people up. What's wrong with that? Well, for most forms of financial service, which is you know insurance or bank accounts or whatever, you're not allowed to do that. There's a specific law called the anti-hawking law that prohibits you trying to sell things to people on an unsolicited basis uh, by knocking on their door or cold calling them, which is the other uh, other big sales method that people have used. But there is a specific exemption for funeral expenses insurance, or there was until recently, an exemption that allowed these products to be sold in this way. Why was this not allowed for some companies? and specifically allowed for funeral insurance, Ben? So this is somewhat lost in the midst of time, right? But back in the really olden days, funeral expenses plans, which pay coverage for funerals, were things offered, you know, on a really kind of like community basis. So they're offered by friendly societies and, you know, building societies and things like this. And they were a pretty sort of small-time small product. And it seems like those people successfully lobbied to be excluded from the the regime. Before about 2020, the law was riddled with these kinds of exemptions. Right. So they were knocking door-to-door in Aboriginal communities in a way that other businesses aren't really allowed to do. What were the other main issues with how they ran their company? The other allegations were frequently made against them 
was that they were misleading people in the way they described the product. Mm. And that was essentially, you know, the name itself, for example, Aboriginal Community Benefit Fund, that it was an Aboriginal business where Ron Pattenden is not Aboriginal or Indigenous, Mm. that it was some way connected to the Aboriginal community. That's not true. Mm. And that it had some benefit to the community, which it didn't. It was a for-profit business. Mm. It used Aboriginal sales staff to sell. It used the Aboriginal flag colours to sell its product. Mm. So it associated itself with the community in a way that regulators alleged and alleged actually to this day is misleading and deceptive. Mm. What else do we need to know about their conduct? Some people thought that they were putting money into a savings fund, Mm. which they weren't. They were getting an insurance product. So it didn't matter how much you put in, you got the same amount out to pay funeral expenses when you or the person covered died. Right. They thought they'd get back every dollar that they were putting in, essentially. Yes, which they absolutely did not. So yes, Eupla paid the cost of the funeral and it kept the rest of the money. How much money would someone generally get back compared to what they put in? It's somewhere around, we think, 10 to 15%. That's what we call junk insurance. Mm. It's it's not worth having. So health funds, you know, your health insurance fund, they pay out, it varies from month to month, but they pay out between about 80 to 90% of what they collect in premiums, right? So they're still making heaps of money. There's a big margin there. But, you know, insurance that's paying out in the teens is just mostly profit for whoever's running the fund and little benefit for the people who are buying the insurance. Right. So can you talk me through the ways that authorities tried to intervene over the 30 years that this company operated? Before um, the end of 1992, the first year of operation, Fair Trading Division of New South Wales Consumer Affairs took ACBF to the Supreme Court in New South Wales to try and stop it promoting the funeral fund because it wasn't registered under the state law. Uh, and wasn't being operated in accordance with that state law. So those are the allegations that the state regulator made then. Kerry Chikorovsky, who was the minister at the time, was in the paper saying, uh, at this stage, the company has failed to satisfy my department the funds paid in by contributors are secure. They got an injunction against the fund operating. So ACBF set up a second fund that complied with what the department wanted. What do you mean by a second fund? How does that work, having multiple funds at one time? Well, (laughs) this is one of the challenges of unravelling what happened with ACBF Mm. slash Eupla. Essentially, like if you sort of zoom out, each time they got into some kind of regulatory trouble or often when they got into some kind of regulatory trouble, what they would do to fix that would be just start a new fund that address the the concerns of whichever regulator it was. And so by the end, when it collapsed, there were four funds. And what would happen with the funds that were being investigated while they just started up a new fund? Well, generally, they weren't able to take new members into that fund, but they were able to continue the business as a whole by setting up a new fund. Right. So they're taken to court by fair trading within a year of starting out. What happened after that? In 1999, the Commonwealth regulator, ASIC, comes along and raises concerns about 
how ACBF was marketing itself. So this is the stuff we were talking about before, you know, as an Aboriginal company using marketing materials with the Aboriginal flag on it, that kind of thing. Mm. And they got an order requiring them to take the Aboriginal flag off their material and add a disclaimer that it was a private company. But they were able to keep using the colours of the Aboriginal flag to sell the insurance. And they have the same name, I imagine, as well, the Aboriginal Community Benefit Fund. Yeah, they, they weren't required to change their name, which is interesting, I think. I mean, in retrospect, it seems like something that possibly ASIC could have picked up on a lot earlier. Mm. The next sort of run-in is 2004, where ASIC took them to court over the door-to-door sales of insurance that they'd been engaging in the community. And um, ASIC won that case because uh, what had been happening was that uh, ACBF had been paying out in cash rather than paying the funeral expenses to the funeral director. And by paying in cash, they weren't able to use the loophole that they had been using to avoid being regulated as a financial service. And if you're regulated as a financial service, you can't do door-to-door sales. Mm. So they just, to to address that, they simply stopped paying out in cash and started paying funeral directors. Right. So continued selling door-to-door. And then 10 years later, in 2014, ASIC was again considering taking action against them, but the financial services enforcement team recommended they didn't go any further because it was basically too complicated, it was too hard, and they had limited resources and they already had a lot of referrals from the Indigenous Outreach Program relating to other companies. It sounds like there's just investigation after investigation here, Dupla changes the way that they operate in some way and then continue on. I'm wondering whether anyone was seeing the bigger picture here and thinking of taking more decisive action. So not really until the Banking Royal Commission comes along, which is started in, in 2017. Mm. Uh, and they did an entire set of hearings up in the, the Northern Territory dealing with what was happening, you know, to Indigenous people and remote communities in their interactions with people who provide financial services or even funeral funds. Aboriginal witnesses set to take the stand at the Banking Royal Commission's hearing in Darwin to share their experience of being targeted by funeral insurance salesmen. And they took a very close look at UPLA mm. and in the report, the interim report that Kenneth Hayne, the commissioner, issued in September 2018... He said the company had not met community expectations. It may have breached a number of laws, including some uh, orders it had agreed to with ASIC about how it marketed uh, itself. Mm. And he recommended changes to the law, which were brought in in 2020, that brought funeral expenses businesses under the same umbrella of laws that cover all other financial services, so the same protections apply to, for consumers. Right. They essentially closed that loophole that was made specifically for funeral insurance that meant it was regulated differently. That's right. The biggest the biggest loophole, really, that, that really is sort of key to the operation of this company and the way it operated for 30 years was that it was all perfectly legal because of this exemption. Mm. What that meant was that one of the other protections exists when you um, want to sell financial services, is that you need a licence. And you need a licence from ASIC. And Eupla tried to get a licence from ASIC, tried very hard, but ASIC didn't give it one. So without a licence, it was unable to take on any new customers. So it started to, to shrink. 
ASIC also, in October 2020, went back to the courts, back to the federal court, and took legal action again for misleading and deceptive conduct, saying that uh, UPLA was making misleading statements by saying it was owned or managed by the Aboriginal people, had the approval of the Aboriginal community, um, and that plan holders would get a lump sum payment on death. So we're sort of dealing with a business that's sort of really got problems by this point. Uh, it can't get a licence. It's got a big court case on foot. So in December 2021, one of its funds, which is known as Fund Number 2, collapsed. And in March 22, it's March this year, the rest of UPLA collapsed. The whole thing has gone into liquidation. Next, can Aboriginal families get their money back? Lorena, when the fund collapsed, as you've mentioned, more than 13,000 people were left with no funeral cover and very unlikely to recover what they paid in for years. What did that mean for Aboriginal families and communities? Well, the consequences already have been devastating. According to Carly and others who I've spoken with, some Aboriginal families are now facing having to leave their loved ones' bodies in the morgue while they raise money to pay for funerals. Yeah, and I've seen, you know, families have to leave their loved ones in the morgue for months because they can't get their money together. You've got these old people that, you know, stayed loyal to the churches mm. and, um, you know, they expect nothing else but to be buried, you know, with a church service. Mm. But now because of all of this, what's, you know, collapsed, you know, on the government's watch, mm. it's really, um, it's sickening and it's really stressful. So some families have tried setting up GoFundMe pages um, because, as we know, Aboriginal people don't have that kind of money in the back pocket for emergencies and they actually thought they did have it put away in this funeral fund. So do you want to tell us where you're from, who's your mob and how you got involved yeah. with this ACBF? Yeah. So my name's Daphne Maiden. I'm Gorga Yalangi from the north, um, far north um, Queensland area of um Mossman Daintree area. I spoke to Gugianji elder Daphne Naden. She signed up to the fund in the mid 1990s for herself and her four daughters. She's likely lost more than $15,000 that she paid in. And at 66, she's now worried about leaving her family with a generational debt to pay for her funeral. And I I've, I've got some health problems, you know. Mm-hmm. But I don't want to leave my family, you know, to have to um, come up with all the funds and that, you know, to yeah. bury me. It's yeah. a traumatic time. We struggle. I think for most people, $15,000 is a lot of money. How long could the impact of this be felt for some families? The way to explain it is the way that non-Aboriginal people think about generational wealth is that over time you pass things on to your kids, they build on it, they increase their wealth or consolidate their wealth and then hand that on to the next generation. Well, this is what's happening for Aboriginal people in reverse. What happens in Australia is that the poverty is totally underestimated. Poverty amongst Indigenous households, in Indigenous households, totally underestimated. 
So as Daphne said to me, many of the families who contributed to the fund started with very little, and that's because they or their parents grew up under really discriminatory government policies that denied them the capacity to generate wealth. They were unable to work, to travel or to get a proper education. The discriminatory things that that have happened Mm. and the stereotyping of Indigenous Mm. people that can't get a job because Mm. they're black or because, you know, Mm. They haven't been able to adapt to the schooling system and so there's, you know, generations of people without employment, you know? Yeah, exactly. And then people, society looks down on people like that without understanding what's really happened. Yep, exactly. Why they're in that situation. And all this, this money that people put away for their funerals is now vanished and now their kids have to find the money to pay for for stuff that they thought they had already paid for. So so you're transmitting the debt across generations, which, you know, sadly is the very thing that these these poor people wanted to avoid. Ben, now that this company has collapsed, is there any way for people who paid a lot of money and never got any benefit from this fund to get this money back? It's very unclear whether they can get any money back. One of the things that they're looking at is whether they can clawback money was paid to the founder of the the company, Ron Pattenden, over the the period. Mm. How much money did Ron make? For the last few months, we've been looking into Ron Pattenden and his finances. We have uncovered that he made more than $20 million tax-free from UPLA slash ACBF between 2010 and 2020 through what was a, a fairly complicated web of offshore companies. Um, We know that he continued to get money even after he sold the business in 2018, um, after it had been at the Financial Services Royal Commission, because he'd sold it to the new owners on an instalment plan. Mm. And um, he has accumulated a pretty significant amount of personal wealth. He bought a luxury yacht called Dreamcatcher. Uh, He bought and operated you know, a high-end fishing and boating resort in Vanuatu, some very nice property in New Zealand. He's um, he's done okay. But then just last week, uh, there's been another development. Uh, the liquidator of the Eupla entities, David Stimson, filed his latest report to creditors with um, ASIC, the corporate regulator, and that shows that between 2002 and 2020, so over two decades, Patented and entities that are associated with them have received um, more than $40 million, uh, so a very large amount of money. Was all of this money acquired legitimately, Ben? As we've said, um, ACBF, UPLA, was legally allowed to operate in the way that it did. And at the moment, there's no evidence that we have that the way they made that money is not legitimate. But last week in his report to creditors, the liquidator confirmed that he's investigating with the various directors of UPLA slash ACBF, you know, a category that includes Ron Pattenden, may have committed an offence by setting up these arrangements in the way that they did. In this report, the liquidator said his preliminary investigations indicated that various directors of UPLA may have committed offences under the Corporations Act by possibly breaching their duties as company directors, including by using their position to gain an advantage 
um, at the expense of the company or failing to act in good faith. And these can be serious offences. Breach of director's duties can be a criminal offence, penalised by a fine of up to $200,000 or up to five years in jail. Now, I think it's very important to say we don't know what Ron Pattenden says in response to these allegations. He could say it's complete nonsense. But he hasn't responded to our detailed questions about the way the affairs of Upla and his affairs were structured, and nor has he responded to the allegations in the liquidator's report, which we put to him over the weekend. What are the next steps in terms of pursuing justice and getting some money back for the families that paid into this fund? Well, there are currently a few options. This Thursday, there will be a hearing in the ongoing ASIC court action into alleged misleading conduct by ACBF UPLA. Uh, Because the company went bust, this action has been paused um, and the federal court is set to decide this week whether it will continue with the legal action despite the company being in liquidation. So, you know, they need to decide whether they want to go ahead uh, with it. We expect they will. And that's because there's value in justice in saying, you know, these are the things we think were done wrong. This is how they happened. And these are the people responsible. Mm. And then there's the role of the federal government itself. The new Minister for Indigenous Affairs, Linda Burney, has already promised that she will look into the collapse as one of her highest priorities uh, and said that a resolution needs to be found. We understand that probably means some form of compensation regime, but the details around that are yet to be defined. And, I mean, she did say that there would probably be a role for the government in assisting the thousands of affected families. So, Ben... Could this situation happen again? You mentioned there have been some reforms to the way that funeral insurance is sold, but could something similar happen in Aboriginal communities in the future? Yes, because there's really not a lot of eyes on the financial exploitation of Indigenous communities, really, at an official level. Mm. Because if there had been, this wouldn't have gone on for 30 years. Lorena, what does it say to you that it took 30 years, multiple court actions, investigations for everything to come to light here with this funeral fund? It is very unlikely, in my view, that this would have been allowed to continue if this had happened to non-Indigenous people. I mean, we're talking about thousands of Australians, thousands who have been you know, who have lost just about everything they've paid in. This is a financial scandal on par with um, some of the big financial scandals we see happening in Australia. It was serious enough to be a case study in the Banking Royal Commission. So it, in a way, it beggars belief that it, w- that they, it was allowed to operate for so many years. And the warning signs were there year on year and still the funds were allowed to operate. I'm losing faith in, in, I shouldn't, I know, because as Australians, we all should have avenues of go to to get justice here. But if you have a look at recent things happening, you know, it seems there's no justice for Indigenous people in this country. That was Guardian's Indigenous Affairs editor, Lorena Allam, and Guardian Australia's senior business reporter, Ben Butler. 
You can read their reporting on Upla, including their exclusive investigation titled Yachts and Mansions, founder of company that left thousands of Aboriginal people out of pocket, made more than $20 million tax-free at theguardian.com. We've linked to that and other pieces on the full story page as well. That's it for today. This episode was produced by Karishma Lusria, Laura Briley-Newton and Camilla Hannon, who also did the sound design and mixing. The executive producers of Full Story are Miles Martignoni, Gabrielle Jackson and me, Laura Murphy-Oates. OK, catch you tomorrow.